The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in free. Two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program. This interview with Dr. Jose Mayorga was conducted over the course of two days in mid-July 2020. It is being broadcast for the first time exclusively on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine on July 28, 2020. Enjoy. Hello, everybody. This is UCI Conversations, and I'm your host, Kevin Bostenmeyer. And my guest today is UC Irvine Health's Dr. Jose Mayorga. Dr. Mayorga is a family medicine physician and is proud to provide high-quality, personalized health care for children, adults, and seniors. He also leads UCI's FQHC, which stands for Federally Qualified Health Center. He is the Health Center's CEO and Chief Medical Officer. Lots to talk about. Welcome, Dr. Mayorga. How are you today? I'm doing great, Kevin. Thanks for having me on. You're very welcome. Before we get into your current professional life, can you just tell us where you grew up and how you evolved into studying medicine and becoming a doctor? Yeah, no. I grew up in Pomona, California, uh, part most of my childhood, and then moved over to Chino Hills, which is in the San Bernardino County area. My parents still live there. I always like to tell this story because my parents were very concerned that I was taking the wrong path to my overall adulthood. Yeah. And so, th- so they sent me to an all-boys school out in Rosemead, known as Don Bosco Technical Institute, oh. and. That drive back then was close to about an hour. And the reason why they sent me there is they saw me again going down the wrong path and felt the need to encourage me to pursue a particular trade. And the high school itself had what was known as technologies, but the, the reality is that they were actual trades. The trades that I chose back then because I was really excited about was drafting and design. So my first passion was architecture. And so much so that I got a full year scholarship, or actually a, a entire scholarship, to attend a small architectural school out in Glendale, but subsequently turned it down and followed my sister's footsteps coming to UCI Health. Interesting. Is your sister also a doctor? No, my sister is the first person in our entire family, entire extended family, to go into college and receive her degree in biology back at UCI. She's actually a first grade teacher right now. Oh, wonderful. So you got your undergrad at UCI in biological sciences, right? Correct. That was back in 99 is when I graduated. That was way before any other sciences existed under the School of Biology. 
So it's strictly a biological science degree. Gotcha. Was it automatic to go to medical school at UCI or did you consider other places? No, not at all. I actually didn't come to realize I wanted to go into medicine until my fourth year at UCI. I will say that when I started my first year at UCI in the freshman dorms of Sierra uh, out in Mesa Court, what was interesting was there was a large contingency of bio majors back then. And the unfortunate thing, not many of us survived, quote unquote. And so I managed to stick it out and continue on in biology, but it didn't dawn on me to become a physician until I was in my fourth year where I was a resident advisor, also in Mesa Court, responding to emerging cases, subsequently some freshmen or sophomores not doing so well while I was on what was considered to be on call as a resident advisor. So what I hear you saying is that it was a tough major and that many students didn't make it all the way through. That's absolutely correct. It was very challenging. And for a lot of folks, particularly, you know, the individuals I interacted with were predominantly minority descent, mostly of Latinx descent. I think those were some things that we talked about a lot. And how do we support ourselves to push through some of the hardcore sciences? Yeah, that's interesting. What do you think made the difference for you? Do you feel like you just had a little bit more umph to study or, you know, literally where you just had a little bit more of a gift for the science? Well, I wouldn't say I had a gift. I just worked really hard. Both my parents are laymen. My dad's a construction worker, now retired from the Iron Workers Union, and my mother was a hairstylist who owned her own beauty salon. All they could teach me was to work hard and not give up. So that was one thing. So that was that drive. The other piece behind just sticking it through in biology was finding the right resources. In other words, I knew that I needed more support. So I took as much tutoring as possible, interacted with as many professors that I could to ask questions and sought out upperclassmen who themselves had passed a certain course and just asked them questions on what should I expect for the upcoming quarter. Excellent. That is just as applicable today, if not more applicable to undergrads. Just backtracking a little bit, when sure. you went to that all-boys school in high school? Is it- yeah, it was an all-boys Catholic faith space out in Rosemead, yeah. And looking back, did that make all the difference? What's your observation yeah. now? It was a very regimented school. We were there from 8 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. every day. We spent over two hours in this technology or specific trade learning about it. And so... I think that discipline was really important. The other thing was, I would say my first mentor, Dr. Toomey, he was my chemistry teacher. And, you know, he saw me uh, in a different light, per se, and and encouraged me to pursue the sciences. Mm. Uh, You know, I was really focused on architecture, but Mm. he really thought, gosh, I think you're going to enjoy going to the sciences, apply to undergraduate schools and apply as a bio major. So that's where I got inspired to go in that direction. Gotcha. So once you got through medical school, which is no easy task, how did UCLA residency come to be? Yeah, so Harbor UCLA. Okay. Um, So there's a difference between the two, but Harbor UCLA. Please tell us. 
Yeah, no, no problem. Harbor UCLA, I had the pleasure of interacting with as a medical student through its suburban fellowship program. And so this program was specifically focused on working with the underserved population in the Lomita Harbor City area. And so Harbor UCLA itself is a county facility. It's part of the county hospital systems. Like most people know County USC being the largest county hospital. Back then, we would joke and say Harbor UCLA was little county, mm-hmm. uh, rightfully so because of the volume of patients that it would serve. And so the majority of the people that Harbor UCLA would care for were either underinsured, undocumented, or really just had resources related to the Medi-Cal or Medicaid insurance program. Now, when you're talking about a county facility, you said that USC was the larger one. Mm-hmm. Aren't you talking about, like you described the clientele to be undocumented and underinsured or maybe no insurance? Isn't that the definition of what a county hospital would do or, or not necessarily? Yeah, they're considered safety net hospitals. The more shocking thing to me is if you cross the Mexican-U.S. border here in California, the closest county hospital system is Harbor UCLA in Torrance. There isn't one throughout San Diego and Orange County. So the closest safety net hospital is in the L.A. County space. And that's true since I was in training until now. Interesting. So how was that experience as a resident? You know, it's one of the most exciting times in my life. I've had a lot of wonderful experiences stemming from UCI undergrad medical school, and then there's residency training program. This program really helped me appreciate just the ability to be a family physician focused in on caring for the underserved. Uh, There's so many nuances associated with understanding how to deliver medical care. But one of the things I did have the luxury of learning and I did during training was understanding a lot of the social determinants of health impacting patients' well-being. Can you describe that a little bit? Sure. So back then, I would say social determinants of health weren't as a catchy phrase as it is now. But social determinants of health are conditions where people live, learn, work, or play that affects a wider range of their health as well as their outcomes. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it's really closely aligned with the distribution of money, power, and resources. And sadly enough, these social determinants of health are mostly responsible for the healthcare disparities we see now. Yeah, you know, that really has been coming into focus, you know, particularly lately. And it is such a eye-opening focus. It's more is to be revealed, it seems like. Absolutely. I think just to kind of give you some specific examples, right? So social determinants of health is where do people get their income from? So let's talk about really what's happening at this point in time, just here locally in Santa Ana, California. So we have a hotspot of COVID-19 patients or, you know, community that's really significantly impacted. Why is that? That's because they're essential workers. They've been essential workers since the onset of this pandemic. So these are folks that go to work because they're either in uh, the food service industry, they're in the janitorial services, they're in the grocery stores working, they're out in the 
in fields, picking the actual food that we eat, really exposing themselves constantly to potentially getting this infection. And then fast forward it, they get home, unfortunately, to a small room, either an apartment or a small home where they live with multi-generational folks. And the reason why they go to work is if they don't have the financial resources, mm -hmm. then how do they continue to help contribute to that household? Mm -hmm. Hold that thought, doctor. Just excuse sure. me for a moment. If you joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations, and I'm your host, Kevin Bostenmeyer. And my guest today is UCI Health's federally qualified health center, chief medical doctor and CEO, Dr. Jose Mayorga. And we're talking about underserved populations in terms of their medical coverage. So, doctor, now that we're identifying this, do you, can you give us a brief overview on what the heck do we do? You know, that is an absolutely important question on how do we continue to care for our entire community. So I'll start off with big picture, right? Mm -hmm. We know in order for us to have a healthy workforce and a healthy economy, we need a healthy society. Mm. And so specifically in focusing our energies and working with the underserved communities, just like here at the UCI FQHC, there's a really important thing for our communities that are underserved to know that we're here to care for them. We're here to care for them at a very high quality in a very culturally sensitive way. Now, there's a massive collaboration going on both with UCI Health, the local healthcare agency, and a lot of nonprofits in the community here, for example, Santa Ana, trying to re-educate and educate those individuals of how to remain safe during this pandemic. And specifically, what are the things? We know already what the classic things are, right? Social distancing, wearing a mask, good hand hygiene, and really, again, appreciating the nuances of their living situations in their environment. How do they actually maintain social distancing if these individuals are in a close proximity to other loved ones in a small apartment complex, for example? Right. Dr. Mayorga, how many federally qualified health centers does UCI have? UCI Health has two sites that are designated as a federally qualified health center. The first site is located in the heart of Santa Ana, uh, right across the street from the courts building. And then the other site, which is the oldest of the two, is in Anaheim, California. Okay. And do you spend equal time between the two, or are there other places you go also? My time is completely dedicated to these two sites. I oversee the entire clinical operations as well as the quality of care and the financial aspects of the FQHC. So I do participate and work closely with other ambulatory directors and leadership of UCI Health in other capacities, but my primary function is working here at the FQHC. Gotcha. Is it public knowledge of what kind of an annual budget the FQHC has or or not? You know, it's interesting you ask that question because FQHCs have been publicizing their information since their inceptions nationally. You could find information of every FQHC across the country. What's interesting to note is that information is shared amongst other FQHCs as well, 
So you could easily find not only our, our financial performance, but more importantly, the types of patients we serve, the quality of care that we're delivering, which tends to be by and large better than the non-FQHC organizations caring for a very similar population. Interesting. So there are other facilities that will help underserved communities. Are those called community centers? Yeah. So, so there's, so every federally qualified health center is a community health center. And sometimes those two uh, titles are interchanged, but not every community health center is designated as an FQHC. You have to go through a very rigorous process to be designated by the federal government to get that funding source as well as designation. So is there qualifications to go to a FQHC or if you were in that population, would it just be better to go to an FQHC? So FQHCs have been predominantly established within underserved medical communities. And so predominantly those are people of low income status, minority communities that we are here to service and provide that bridge to care. So in general, we are dedicated to providing care even if folks don't have the ability to pay. So to this day, you could walk in right now in my clinic or any FQHC across the country, ask to be seen by their doctor. And if you don't have the ability to pay or have health insurance, there are mechanisms in place that we all have to serve you that day. If you have a patient that comes in to your facility and they have to go to the hospital, what is that whole process like and, and where do they go? You know what? All FQHCs are required to have relationships with respective hospitals in their community. Most hospitals are nonprofit and they do collaborate with various community health centers or FQHCs to have these transitions or abilities to transfer patients that require higher level of care so that they contain that service. So in our instance, for example, of course, we, we could send our patients to UCI Health if they're uninsured, or we could also send them to other hospitals within the area. Gotcha. Now, have you somewhat recently come back to this area Doctor, or is this the area you've always been in? You know, as it pertains to the area, when I finished residency, I've all, I, I established my entire professional career in Orange County. You know, I like to jokingly say that I've done just about everything in healthcare. So when I graduated residency, I worked for a small practice here in OC. And then subsequently, I asked my boss at the time, you know, I really want to be your medical director, not knowing what that even meant, but it sure sounded good at the time. And so I told him I wanted to do that. He, we had a great relationship. He jokingly told me, hey, you know, Jose, you're a little young, but I'll give you a couple of projects. And so a couple of months later, I decided to open up my own practice down in Costa Mesa. And so I did open up my own private practice. And at the same time, as I was trying to build that, as well as maintain revenue to help support my family, I started working for Ultimate Health Services, which is one of the larger FQHCs within the area. And they convinced me to come on board and be their medical director for their largest site at the time here in Orange County. It was at Huntington Beach. Quickly thereafter, 
I ended up getting recruited over to Share Ourselves, which uh, at the time was a free clinic to the community of Costa Mesa and got designated as a fairly qualified health center. I was the first physician they ever hired and became their chief medical officer. And that was a huge learning opportunity for me, which eventually catapulted my experience in understanding how to not only deliver care to patients, but really understand what it takes to lead an organization dedicated in serving the underserved. What does that entail? And what are some of the issues that come up? You know, it was so interesting being at Share Ourselves, also known as SOS, because one of the things that I had to quickly understand were all the regulatory requirements that uh, FQHC had to go through. I had to design a quality improvement plan. So there's an expectation that every FQHC follows science, evidence-based guidelines to deliver care. And we have to have a plan approved by our board of directors to ensure that we are constantly addressing people's health conditions appropriately. So that was a huge task of mine. The other thing that was very important while I was there was I needed to convert from just a strictly adult practice to providing pediatric care, OBGYN, and I threw in into that as well as wraparound behavioral health services such as counseling and psychological care. So it was a huge approach to the, the overall delivery of health and care to a patient. It was no longer focused at just the medical care. We were really trying to take care of the whole person. And so I was able to succeed with the rest of the leadership there. And we went from one physical location. By the time I left in three years, we had four sites and were growing rapidly, serving a larger portion of the Orange County community. Mm. When did you leave there? I left there approximately, I would say, five years ago. That time frame was interesting because I, I really was happy where I was at. And, and what was interesting is I got a random phone call one day from a recruiter who had heard or, or seen a little bit about me as a leader. And she said, you know, there's this HMO or IPA here in Orange County, and they're looking for a medical director to lead them. Would you be interested? And I said, sure, why not? I mean, you know, my dad always taught me if someone wants to talk to you about an opportunity, you should always follow up on that. So I did and subsequently got hired on as the IPA medical director for healthcare partners. Healthcare partners at the time had just entered the Orange County area and had bought uh, the three IPAs of which collectively serviced over 100,000 patients. So here I am in a position, I went from taking care of just about 10,000 patients at SOS to now 100,000 patients, all under my preview, predominantly Medi-Cal, um, and overseeing 400 primary care doctors and 900 specialists. And so oh. talk about daunting task. <laughs> yeah. It was, uh, it was a pretty, pretty good, growth experience for me, another great growth experience. And did you go from there back to UCI Health? Or when did that happen? Uh, you know, as I was sitting in my role as an IPA medical director, I really enjoyed that experience. It was great to understand the nuances between, of uh, 
the business aspect of medicine. Here I was working for a for-profit company, Fortune 200, trying to make uh, enough revenue to, of course, please the, the shareholders. But deep down inside, what was really more exciting to me while I was there was trying to get the organization, this Fortune 200 company, to appreciate the value of community health centers, i.e. FQHCs. So it was great to educate them to do that. At the same time, one of the things that I started to really begin to reflect on was, did I want to stay on the path that I was on, which ultimately would have led me to probably being further away from direct patient care, or did I really want to come back into getting more down into the area that I, that I first became impassionate with, which was taking care of the underserved more directly? And so an opportunity came up where UCI Health, particularly the FQHC, was looking for their chief medical officer. And I took the opportunity to apply and, and the rest is history. And when did you come to UCI? I officially just celebrated my two-year anniversary being back. Oh, okay. So, yeah. Gotcha. And how many doctors are actually under that umbrella? It's hard to describe because within the two sites, we have a combination of faculty physicians as well as resident physicians. So depending on how we do the math, it can be approximately about 150 physicians covering not only family medicine, uh, but also pediatrics and OBGYN. In addition to that, we also have the School of Nursing. Um, so there are nurse practitioners that, that serve here at the FQHC. Um, and function as primary care clinicians alongside our, our, our family doctors. Um, and also there's uh, other nurse practitioners who help manage our, our walk-in uh, clinic as well. Gotcha. What resources does Orange County provide to clinics like UCI Health FQHC for providing care for patients without health insurance? Well, the resources are critical to manage such a disenfranchised community. One of the other expectations as a FQHC is working collaboratively with other fellow FQHCs as well as nonprofits in the area. So for example, here at UCI Health, we work with another FQHC at this point in time to help us with substance use disorder because currently we don't provide medication-assisted uh, therapy but we do have a partnership with another FQHC that is able to service our patients while we begin to develop our own program. And eventually we will have our own program in that area. The other really great collaboration we have is with one of our local food pantries. So there's no point in me telling my diabetic or high blood pressure patient to eat healthy if they can't access or get healthy foods, right? So we've collaborated with the local food pantry to provide us that service for both our two sites and give patients healthy foods such as vegetables and, and fruits. Gotcha. Excuse me for a moment, doctor. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossemar, and my guest today is UCI health physician, Dr. Jose Mayorga, who is also the chief medical doctor, CEO of UCI's federally qualified health centers, also known as FQHCs. Doctor, what impact has COVID had 
well, not only on your clientele, but also on your medical students and residents, you know, in terms of their exposure while rotating in the clinics. Can you address that? Yeah, COVID-19 has impacted every single one of us that work here at the FQHC, as well as our patients. Our community, I'll start off first with, because the patients we serve since the onset of this pandemic have been and are essential workers. These are patients that have to work because they need to provide food on the table for their families and keep a roof over their heads. They work in supermarkets, they work in janitorial services, you know, they work in the food industry. They have the inability to work remotely because they need to show up and deliver that service. On the other hand, what makes it even more disheartening is when we see the community getting impacted by this because of that working environment, it really hurts us because we know that there's a way to mitigate them getting sick. If people really just took basic measures, I, and in this case, I'm referring to wearing a mask. I think masking has unfortunately become very politicized when in reality, we know that from an infectious standpoint, it really would make a huge difference. And that's why there's a lot of data supporting why the community, particularly the Latinx and, and uh, Black community are getting impacted substantially because they are essential workers. They've been working for some time and getting exposed more often than others. As it relates to our medical students and our residents, I could only imagine what's going through their minds at this point. I mean, it is absolutely something none of us have ever expected or ever encountered in our lifetimes. And the medical students in particular were asked to step away from their duties during their third and fourth year medical school rotation. So they, for a period of time, we had asked them not to report to the clinics or the hospital. And so that impacted not only their experience, but of course their, their education. But, but one thing that was really, which was really, uh, you know, shock, not I would say shocking, but was really impactful to me was a lot of them began to reach out and they started emailing different faculty members. And I, I sure got a, a large volume of emails come my way asking how they could help. And, you know, they played such a vital role during the last few months and either just doing fundraisers or, or um, protective equipment drives to try to support the rest of us who, who are here working and taking care of patients. Many of them actually helped me translate documents that we needed to quickly deploy to our patients into various languages. I mean, we, they translated about, you know, into seven to eight different languages, information that would be crucial for our patients to understand how to do what's known as virtual visits. They even did some YouTube videos in various languages to help support that training and education for patients. You know, of course, our residents continue to deliver care and they continue to be on the front lines of managing these patients critically ill in the hospital. And of course, they have been doing this without any hesitation and knowing very much how much they care about their community as well as continue to serve those that need it the most. Stepping back to big picture, mm -hmm. where are we with COVID at all levels, nationally, state, and local? It, it, we never got out of the first wave, and it seems like we're already into the second wave. 
Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I, we've not gotten out of the first wave. We never exited it. You know, from my personal perspective, we lost over 120 days. I mean, remember, we shut schools down and everything went into stay-at-home orders back in March. We had a wonderful opportunity to really prepare ourselves to do the public health things that needed to get put in place so that we could be better prepared come this fall when all of us want our kids to go back to school, but yet we missed a window, we missed the opportunity. And we're still, we're still struggling with testing, we're still struggling with the, the protective equipment, and we're still having debates of what really helps mitigate the spread of this disease. I mean, those are some really challenging things that makes a lot of us here at the university really take a step back and say, why? Why are we there? And, and a lot of it, of course, as many people like to point out, it, it comes from leadership. It comes from people having to make some really tough decisions when it's not the most popular decision to make. And I think that's where we're at as a country, especially when you compare ourselves to other countries around the world who are doing a lot better than us. I think we have to take a step back and, and start to appreciate it's not about me, but it's about we and how do we take care of each other so that we could curtail this situation. Well said. Are your health centers using telemedicine? You know, we are doing virtual health care. We are doing telemedicine or telehealth, depending on who you talk to, how it's described. We had to convert quickly into that to ensure the safety of our patients, to ensure our most vulnerable patients, i.e. our more frail patients who are elderly or have multiple medical problems, or even our newborn babies didn't get impacted or exposed. So yeah, absolutely. We're doing telehealth. You know, one of the things that's interesting behind that is we, for lack of a better word, took a big leap of faith, hoping that all of our patients would jump on to using smartphone technology to do video chats and whatnot. For the most part, our current FQHC patients are doing strictly just phone visits with us, um, and we're moving in the direction to enroll and have a lot of them sign up for the ability to do video visits. And so we hope to get that further along so that we can do better care uh, using both video and, and audio capabilities. I'm surprised that the homelessness situation with COVID, it doesn't seem like it's been as rampant in that community. Do you have a sense of that, doctor? You know, every day I walk into the Santa Ana Clinic where my office is located, I think about that every day. Because historically, pre-COVID, we would have a good amount of homeless mm -hmm. individuals around our clinic. I don't know where they're at. Mm -hmm. I don't know how they're doing from a health standpoint. Mm -hmm. You know, FQHCs in general, including ours, take care of a lot of our homeless population. As a matter of fact, some of us even have that designation. We're as a homeless grantee. And so... It's very interesting that there isn't more talk about that. I think that what I've noticed, some of the, the FQHCs that have mobile units are still trying to go out to the various areas that they know are homeless encampments to serve them better. And so they are managing those patients as best as they can. But 
at least here for UCI, I don't see them around our facility as often as I used to. Interesting. In Orange County, how many FQHCs are there? There's two through UCI Health. How many others are there, doctor? So there's a total of about 14 FQHCs. Now, that doesn't mean there's just 14 physical buildings. As a matter of fact, one FQHC may have four facilities or an additional mobile unit. So uh, there are several FQHCs in the county itself. Uh, and just to kind of give you perspective, most people don't even realize that. They don't realize how disenfranchised Orange County is. To have that many community health centers or FQHCs located in such a small county. So there is quite a few within our vicinity. As a matter of fact, extrapolating it further, California has the largest number of FQHCs across the country and its territories. Mm. I forgot the official name, but Obamacare, is that frequently used in your facilities? Oh, the Affordable Care Act? Yes. The Affordable Care Act or Obamacare was a wonderful opportunity for many individuals to receive health coverage. And it opened the window and access to care for many. Mm. And the primary delivery of care for those recipients has been FQHCs across the country. Mm. Because remember, most of these folks were uninsured and now they have the ability to be seen by a physician. A lot of physicians, a lot of private physicians didn't sign up to be a recipient or, or contract with health insurance companies that provided ACA coverage. And so really the FQHCs across the nation were leading the charge in caring for these individuals. What's interesting about this, there's so much to talk about what this administration has done to the Affordable Care Act. One of the things that's really interesting with COVID-19, I really, I wanna digress a little bit here because I think it puts things in perspective about how critical the ACA has been. You know, there are states throughout this country that decided not to adopt the Medicaid or Medi-Cal expansion, which was an arm of the ACA. Mm -hmm. And what is happening due to the economic impact, people are losing their private health insurance. So now they're becoming uninsured. Well, guess what? If those states had adopted the Medicaid expansion program, those same patients or those same individuals would now have coverage. They would now have Medicaid coverage. Unfortunately, they don't. And what happens? That uninsured patient now, because they're ill by COVID-19, has to receive services at a hospital who now is stuck with the financial impact of an uninsured patient. And so it is an unfortunate, vicious cycle that's occurring throughout some of these states because some of the most needed community hospitals in these areas are really at a verge of going bankrupt and closing. And that's well documented if you take a look at some of those states that didn't adopt the Medicaid expansion portion of, of the ACA. <sighs> Doctor, it occurs to me that there's a large contingent of 
people who are underinsured or not insured. We, and these people need help. They absolutely need help. And then we've also recently had the social unrest regarding underprivileged, low-income populations. And these are big costs to help people. And the, yet the Trump administration, you know, has been very heavy-handed and really embarrassing in terms of, you know, shutting down the borders and being disparaging. Yes. Is it a legitimate question to say we want to have reasonable, balanced immigration policy? Let me see if I can put some context behind it. You know, I have a very firm belief that in order for us to be a healthy society, a thriving economy, we need to keep everybody healthy. Mm-hmm. It is so apparent now more than ever mm-hmm. that that is what we need to do. Mm-hmm. When you have a pandemic ravaging the country, forcing small businesses to close, forcing individuals to go into unemployment, it is a testament to why we need to ensure individuals have access to care, equal access to care. And this is why federally qualified health centers came to existence back in the 1970s. President Johnson was smart enough to witness the impact that minority communities in the South were having when their newborns, particularly black newborn infants were dying at a faster rate because they just, their families were not given the resources to have healthy pregnancies and be well cared for. And so the enactment of an FQHC is to address the social disparities of health that many of these individual communities are faced with. Now, again, from my perspective, having a healthy society will really make a huge difference. And that is why an FQHC specifically, its global mission is to provide care to anyone, anyone, even if they don't have the ability to pay. If you're documented or undocumented, We don't ask those things. As a matter of fact, we're not expected to ask those things. And we provide the care. If right now someone flew in from another country and was ill, we would be able to service that individual in the FQHC. That is our mandate. That is what is expected of us to do. And so we do this in this setting because a lot of us have that mission we're committed to working for the underserved Mm. and so again i think the nation as a whole is living in a very interesting time we're observing the disparities in healthcare and the socioeconomic status that has pushed us to this breaking point where you see social unrest where you see the cry for social justice because all of this is intertwined Everything is intertwined. Difficult, difficult question to answer, but absolutely one we need to answer. I very much think of the monetary part of it. 
of course you want to help people. You know, we don't have unlimited dollars to do this. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Mm -hmm. what we have right now is big enough that between the pandemic and these social needs, it's almost like we need a pause just to get our arms around it because it doesn't seem like we have our arms around it very well at all. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because I will tell you, just to kind of give you some insight with regards to the economics behind FQHCs. So in 2018, FQHCs collectively as a group saw 28 million people across the entire U.S. and its territories. That's one in 12 individuals in the country at the time and one in three children at the time. Now, for us to do that, we obviously have federal funding and there's mechanisms in place for us to get reimbursed. But part of that reimbursement is the commitment to taking that funding and putting right back into the care of patients if they don't have the ability to pay, as I've mentioned, right? So, so whatever revenue we receive, our goal is to be able to, do, to use it right back into the care of patients. Now, it is well documented that FQHCs per visit save a dollar every time and per year per patient, we approximately save about $1,300 a year. Multiply that by 28 million. That's $35 billion in savings to the healthcare system of the U.S. Mm. So when so, you tell me that the U.S. cannot do healthcare, I will push back and say, yes, we can, because we've been doing it since the mid-70s at a reduced cost with better health outcomes to a very challenging and underserved community, yet we are doing it because we care and we're doing it in a very culturally sensitive manner. And so that's the exciting piece behind FQHCs. We're the best kept secret in healthcare. Excellent. Doctor, I know we're running low on time. Is there anything else that you wanted to add before we adjourn? Yes. You know, people always ask me why I chose family medicine as my specialty as opposed to becoming a surgeon or another specialty. You know, a lot stems from my mentor. Going through UCI as an undergraduate and finally making the decision to go into medicine, I needed to find a mentor. I needed to find someone like me. And I was fortunate enough to meet Dr. Jose Sandoval, who is no longer with us, but he was a wonderful mentor to me and many other minority students pursuing healthcare careers. And I had the pleasure of being able to shadow him and work with him in Santa Ana Clinic here at the Family Health Center. And it is here where I could genuinely say I became passionate for working with the underserved more than ever and becoming a family physician because the people that he saw reminded me of not only my parents, but my aunts and uncles who really needed someone that understood them, not only from a perspective as a doctor, but more importantly, as someone that could relate to them culturally, as someone that could really communicate with them in their language and and be able to assist them, not, not just them, but also their entire family. 
And so it's really one of those things that, that I'm thankful to be given the opportunity, not only to become a doctor, thanks to him, I will say, but others that I was able to connect with and mentor me to, to get to where I am now. Because to me, that has really helped continue to inspire me to, to pursue more and, and care for those that are most vulnerable. And the only way I can repay them back is to be a mentor to others. And, you know, I think coming full circle and walking these same hallways where I was once an undergrad, I would have never in a thousand years, I'd be like thinking I'd be running these clinics. And here I am. Mm. Doctor, thank you so much for being on the program. I look forward to talking with you again. Kevin, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time. It's been fun. Thank you again to UCI Health, FQHC, Federally Qualified Health Center CEO and Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Jose Mayorga, for all his insights into and experience with the underinsured and uninsured communities. It was eye-opening and revealing. All I know is that the United States is the only major country in the world which does not have health care provided to all citizens. We must do a better job. Thank you to Dr. Mayorga and his team for all the work that they do. Thank you also to Fred Kaplan for supplying all my show theme music from his CD signifying. It's my favorite blues piano album. Check it out. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI Conversation Show, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters. I'm your host, Kevin Bostonmeyer, wishing you a wonderful midsummer night's dream. Stay safe, socially distance, wear a mask, wash your hands, and help where you can. We're in it together. So long, everybody.